the foundation of likability is authenticity. You can't like somebody who's not being real. The reason that relationships are amazing is when they are real. I always say real relationships, real results. Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. As an FYI, this introduction might take as long as the entire podcast itself as a result of all the accomplishments and accolades of my next guest, Michelle Tillis Letterman. Okay, here goes nothing. Michelle is a world-renowned author, trainer, professor, board member, philanthropist, former CPA, speaker, and peak performance coach. She's been featured on Fox 5, CBS, NPR, Gail King, Martha Stewart Living, Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, just to name a few. I'm sure somehow I've left out other accomplishments, so I apologize, Michelle. But I'm sure the listeners are going to get the gist of your prowess. If her pedigree doesn't speak for itself, as you will see, she's a force of nature. So don't let that five-foot-tall frame deceive you, as she carries herself like a giant and has this larger-than-life personality. Michelle is a true type A who's driven to edify people on how to improve their communication skills and connect so they can get the most out of their life. Her positive energy is contagious and fun. During the course of our conversation, we get a chance to learn about Michelle's personal life and family, the sacrifices that she's had to make along her journey, as well as a few attributes that she feels has fueled her success. As the conversation progresses, she discusses the 11 laws of likability, the importance of follow-up, and what networking means to her and where most people go wrong. I had a lot of fun with her on the show, and she promised to come back, which is something that I plan to hold her to. There's just so much more that I need to know and look forward to having her share her insights with. So, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Michelle Tillis Letterman sitting here with an expert. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so Michelle, what do you do for fun? I love that question. I actually hate when somebody says, what do you do? Uh-huh. And usually want them to say, what do you do this weekend? Or what are you doing for fun? Uh, for me, I am an adrenaline junkie. I didn't know this until my husband told me I was adrenaline junkie when he refused to be dropped in the middle of a jungle and hike out with me. <laughs> Where'd you do that? We were in Belize. And we didn't do it because he was a chicken. Oh, I might have to get in trouble for saying that, but he knows I do this. Um, so I love new experiences, traveling to new places, trying new things. The only thing that scares me besides for um, bungee jumping, which I haven't done and won't do, is riding a bike. You won't ride a bike? I, I can sort of. I just learned in my 40s. And w Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Jersey on a hill. Okay. And I'm four foot ten. <laughs> And got hand-me-down bikes, and my feet never reached the pedals. So I felt very insecure and unbalanced. And I used to say, I'll ride my big wheel until I can ride a car. <laughs> do your kids ride your bike? They do. And I taught them how, and then learned myself. And they learned four-letter words. <laughs> <laughs> how about them apples? So have you skydived? Yes. You have. Did I your have. husband skydive? He did do that one with me. Wow. Yeah. And then and why no bungee jumping? I don't want to be upside down. Yeah. I'm dying to bungee jump. Oh, I haven't see, done it. Mm, upside down just doesn't feel good to me. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. tough. Okay, great. So you've got a couple kids. You've got so many things going on in business. How do you how do you manage and juggle all of that? Who says I juggle it all? <laughs> things fall all the time. <laughs> uh, well, what are you working on now? 
I'm actually finishing up my next book. It's called The Connectors Club. So that's been my big push. Coming back to the how do you juggle it all, for all the people out there who are thinking, oh, good, she's dropping all the balls as well. Great. I feel better. There is no such thing as balance. Balance doesn't exist. It can exist. We have to fit what we want to fit and let go of what we can let go of. And we make choices. And so I'm constantly making choices. And some days it's the choice to take a drive out to traffic and meet somebody cool and have this kind of conversation. And some days it's to sit on, you know, at my office and just run the phones all day. Just crank it out. Yeah. That's funny. There's always something that we're sacrificing. I look at sacrifices, giving up something of a lesser nature for something of a greater nature. What are sacrifices that you've had to make in your career to get where you are today? You know, I guess I don't even think of it as sacrifices. People often ask me the question about failure, and I don't think about it as failure. I don't think about it as sacrifice. I always think about it as choice. And when it comes to failure, I think about it as learning and experience and the path to get there. It's not straight. So do I sacrifice sleep? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yep. Amen. Oh, um, you know, my nails might not get done every week, but I don't, I don't view those things as sacrifices. I really do view them as choices. So how have you been able to accomplish all the things that you've done? And for anyone that doesn't know who Michelle is, undergrad from Lehigh, where you graduated with honors, from what I recall. Is I that... want to be really obnoxious with highest honors. Highest honors. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to do you justice. You go. What are, tell us about some of the things that you've done. Let's see. Lehigh. Columbia MBA program, and I'm afraid to say if there was a certain honor or something that I missed. Is there anything? Just regular honors. There. Just regular <laughs> honors. Okay, at Columbia. Okay, you've worked for some of the elite management consulting firms. You've worked for elite banks, whether it was directly as an employee or having them as uh, clients for the business that you have now. You've been on multiple platforms, written a bunch of books that I'm hoping you give a, uh, an overview about, as well as we get a little more into what you're working on now. Mother of two kids. Yeah, you're that's involved. the important thing. I mean, Mother yeah. of two kids and two rescue dogs. Ooh, what kind of dogs? One is a husky lab mix, mm -hmm. we believe. And the other is, now I never even heard about this breed until I got her, a Catahoula leopard. Catahoula leopard. Google I've it. Never heard They're of that. really yeah. adorable. It's spotted black, white, and gray. And she might have some kind of shepherd, Australian shepherd, or cattle dog, or something else in her. We don't know, but she's the best. How'd you get involved in that? I've actually done animal rescue most of my life. So I love animals. It's a passion of mine. If anybody wants to see me and the animals, if they go on my Facebook page, and I'm sure there'll be links in the show notes, um, there's an album called Me and the Animals, and you will see me with a Siberian tiger, with a fox, with a kangaroo, with a sloth giving me the best hug, a monkey on my shoulder. I mean, you name it, I love the animal. Even a snake is in there. Wow. Um, so I did work with Animal Rescue in the city of New York when I was still single, pre-kids, and that's how I'd bet the boyfriends. Huh. Would they would they pick up poop with me? You're all in. <laughs> you were all, how many of them cut it? I only needed one, too. That's true. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Okay. Yeah. How much time does that take up for you? I don't get to do it as much anymore because once the kids were born, it was pretty hard yeah. um, when you're bringing rescues and abused animals and they're not predictable always. Mm. So we would work to rehabilitate them and socialize them to get them adoption ready. And you can't really do that with infants. So so now I just rescue some. I, we did a little bit of fostering as they got older, but my youngest, who is almost 11, can't wait until he's old enough to do it himself. Wow. So, so you're bringing them into your home, not into necessarily a shelter? Your home's the shelter? I We have done that. I had these two puppies that lived in my tub <laughs> and uh, ate the corner of the door and, you know, because they were 
very young and sick, and that's when I was living in New York. But And then what do you do with them now? Now we just adopted a gotcha. couple of them, but we're not actually doing as much rescue work ourselves. I've raised some money for some sanctuaries, and that's actually how I got to play with all those really cool wild animals was through fundraising for Well, them. that's great. So what I'd like also in the show notes is get a link for people that are interested in learning more about that and potentially donating. So yeah. many organizations out there that you, you know, find um, World Wildlife Fund or ASPCA or your local shelter. I mean, those are the ones that really do need the support. So we support the two shelters that we adopted our dogs from. Man, we've gotten all of our animals, even just growing up from shelters. And uh, it is such a hard place to go because you want to take all of them home. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So how did you decide on the two that you have? I said that when my my youngest turned five, we would get a dog. And so a few months ahead of time, I was going on Pet Finder and looking for the dogs. And we found this litter coming up from Atlanta. And I went to visit them a couple of times, trying to figure out which one was right for us. And then we literally slept out to get online because it was, you know, a litter of six puppies. And they, we got there like 3.30 in the morning and slept in the back of our truck. <laughs> wow, you are all in. We were all in so that we could pick out the one that we wanted and she's the best. And then the new one, we really knew we needed somebody who would get along with the older one. So we brought her to a lot of the uh, meetings and she helped us pick. <laughs> that is great. I'm so impressed uh, with who you are and what you've done. Michelle and I do not know each other, but have quickly connected, which I'm not surprised at all. I actually used to have an executive search firm and I used to spend a lot of the time with the candidates that uh, I worked with preparing them for interviews. There, there were so many people that really were good on paper and had excellent, you know, quantifiable skills, but some of the softer skills I found a lot of people really lacked. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent a lot of time working with some of these people to kind of refine them, if you will. And a lot of the things that I would teach, I had wish I had come across your book or if you had written your book a few years earlier, because like ver almost verbatim, things that are in your books are things that I would teach or try to employ with some of these candidates. So upon coming across some of your work, as well as just seeing that we share a lot of the same contacts, everybody speaks very highly of you, I reached out to you directly. I had to. I, there was so much of what you, and, and not just from getting a job perspective, a lot of the, you know, networking, something yeah. that's obviously near and dear to me. So I reached out. I reached out to Michelle. Your response time was pretty quick, I would say a day or two from, uh, do you remember the exchange? Usually I try to get back within a day or two, depending on whether or not I'm on the platform or, or training somewhere and traveling. I always respond, and, and this is what I thought would be really interesting for your listeners to hear is that, you know, somebody reaches out to you on LinkedIn and it can stay there, or you can do what I did, which was send them an email back saying, hey, how'd you find me? Because this was a stranger who was reaching out, but it was a stranger who I had a lot of people in common with, and he looked like he had some interesting work and that we might have some uh, interesting things to talk about. So I emailed him and said, how'd you find me? And that became an exchange. And now I'm sitting here recording this. Yeah, this is great. And there's so much. So we just finished up a nice meal and the conversation, I mean, it was just, it was happening at warp speed, so many different topics to cover. The success that you've had, if you could, if you were to kind of boil down the things that have made you kind of the, the cream rise to the top, is there any one thing in particular? Or are there two or three things that you have done or have worked really hard to do that you can attribute to that success? There's two thoughts that come to my mind immediately. One is, and it goes back to what we were talking about with, with failure and, and perspective. I was once um, stalked by a woman who was starting a networking group. She was called Six Figures, and she, she reached out to me and said, here's why I'm reaching out to you, and I've been watching you. 
and, and similar to you, invited me for a meal. And so I'm a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. you just blatantly reached out. Apparently, she had been literally stalking, and I thought it was really funny. So we sat down, and she said, you know, what I wanted to ask you was, did you have a plan B? And I looked at her like she had 10 heads. Now, I'm a recovering CPA. I spent 10 years in finance. My degree was in accounting. And what I do now is completely opposite. Now, I was a minor in writing communication, so I did have some education in the field that I'm in now. But it was a complete change from working on Wall Street, working on the trading floor, to being an entrepreneur and teaching communications and leadership and management and all those soft skills that are really hard. And when I made that transition, she's, this is a few years. I, I might have had a first book out yet. I'm not even sure. I said, no, I didn't have a plan B. And she said, why not? I said, because I knew I could succeed. I didn't know exactly what I would succeed at, but I knew I would succeed in whatever I put my mind to. And so I think that perspective of trusting yourself and knowing that if you put in the work in, you make it happen, you have control. And as I said, the business has evolved. It was not at all what I envisioned at the start. It just continues to kind of morph itself and, and I follow it and I guide it, but it, it, it has a life of its own. So that was the number one. The number two is the people that I built up around me. When I was back in my finance days and I got laid off in, I think it was 2001 or 2000, whenever Dot everyone com? else got laid off, somewhere or, around there. I think oh it was no, 2001. Around there, right? The whole world was getting laid off. And I think there was maybe three people from my business school class that didn't get laid off. And I called somebody from my business school class. I got, I think I was notified on Monday. I went to clean out my desk on Tuesday and called him. And I said, guess what? I just got laid off. He goes, come work here. And that's what relationships do for you. And I was working there by the following Monday. Wow. I went in Wednesday for the interview, met his boss on Thursday. The boss said, can you start tomorrow? I said, can I have till Monday? And he said, sure. So let's talk about that. How much of that do you attribute to the amazing skill set you have versus uh, that relationship that you had developed with the person who made that introduction for you? I think it's about developing genuine relationships. I didn't become friends with this person so that he would get me a job, you know, two years later. I became friends with this person because I liked the person. And that's what the first book is about. The 11 Laws of Likeability is about understanding what drives likeability, the foundations for connection and what makes somebody like you or not like you for that matter. And the things that we should do before, during, and after a conversation. Give us some examples. So before a conversation, and what we were just talking about, the foundation of likability is authenticity. You can't like somebody who's not being real. And the reason that relationships are amazing is when they are real. I always say real relationships, real results. So authenticity is the foundation. When we talk about the other 10 laws, if you don't do them with the threat of authenticity, then don't bother. I had, Sorry to interrupt you for a second, but I had somebody on last week that made a really good point. We were talking about just some of the people that have some of the best relationships and networks and things of that nature. And she said, really, it boils down to if you don't like yourself, mm. if you can't love yourself, who can love you? That's chapter two. That's called the law of self-image. Tell uh -huh. us about that. Yeah. <laughs> the law of self-image is you have to like you first. You have to believe you first. As I said, what part of my success was that I believed I would be successful. I had to believe it before I could convince anybody else to. I believed when I went to J.P. Morgan with my first meeting, I didn't have a website yet. I didn't have business cards yet. I, I had nothing. But I went to that meeting at J.P. Morgan and said, I can do that for you. And What they, was it? I was doing a business writing class for sales and trading managers. 
Interesting. <laughs> that was my first program. And that was my first client. And I got great reviews because I knew I could, even though I had no proof, no experience, no references, no nothing. Wow. <laughs> if you believe you, you enable others to believe you. If you like you, you enable others to like you. Now, when I talk about authenticity, I created a definition because authenticity has become this buzzword out there. And what does it mean? In my mind, it means showing up open, as we did today, mm -hmm. and infusing into your interactions the qualities of yourself that you value the most. That's the first part of it. That's kind of saying, hey, I like me. Let me show you the things that I like about me. Let me let you feel and experience this part of me that I feel good about. But there's another part of it, and that's accepting and flexing your unique charms. So we all have these parts of ourselves that might not be our best qualities. They might not always work to our advantage, but they are who we are, and we don't necessarily want to change them because sometimes they do work for us. And that's what I call unique charm. Sometimes it's good, sometimes not so much. <laughs> and that's understanding when we need to allow those charms to come out and sometimes when we need to kind of manage them a little bit more. Authenticity is not saying, well, I'm a jerk, so I'm just going to be a jerk because that's me. That's not what we give you permission to I mean, be. It's just a shtick. <laughs> so uh, you already hit about the foundational. So we're still kind of before the conversation, before we actually start to build that relationship. So we have to get our mind in the right place and understand how people are perceiving us. So chapter three is the law of perception. And then four is the law of energy. And that kind of encompasses how we get our brain in the game to build true connection and true relationship and to be open to it. Talk about that a little more, because I think that's one that a lot of people will call you, I don't know the word for it, but they'll call that a little, maybe a little too foofy. Can you quantify that a little more? Tell me what you so mean. That, explain that law. Energy? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> got the foofy part. It's funny. When I was writing the book, my editor, nobody understood this law. So it was actually the first chapter that I wrote. The law is that energy is contagious. And we have a an energy knowledge of ourselves. We have what I call productive energy. And we have natural energy reactions. So the four most common reactions that we have in a situation are to add fuel to the fire. So adding fuel to the fire sounds like it could be bad. And many times it is. It, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, oh, I'm really mad. Oh my God, you should be mad at them. And somebody just escalates it really large. But fuel to the fire could also be that cheerleader. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. I shared once, right before I went on to my first international speech, back in 2015, I had my son with me. He might have been eight years old at the time. And I was nervous. I mean, it was the largest audience, a thousand people in a foreign country that English wasn't their first language. And I was the main speaker. You know, when they had the whole brochure, I was the picture at the top. It was Oh my God, overwhelming. And so my heart's racing. I'm about to go on. And my son goes, you're going to be great, mommy. And he added fuel to my fire. And I believed him. So fuel to the fire, that energy reaction, it can be both positive and negative. One that I recommend never using is the brush off. 
And we do this and we don't even realize we're doing it. The brush off is when we minimize, dismiss what other people are feeling. So, oh, that's just not that important. That's not that big a deal. Oh, you shouldn't be worried about that. I think you're, you know, I think you're going a little extreme here. And we, we minimize and make people feel um, invalidated. So even though we might be thinking, oh, we're trying to calm them or we're trying to give them a different perspective, we're not. We're brushing them off and we're dismissing them. And that doesn't feel good. So we want to really be careful with that one. That's different than extracting yourself, the third energy reaction. Sometimes you might not have a productive energy and you might be aware of it. So you're going to one of those networking events and you're like, oh, hmm. nobody out there has ever felt that way. I'm an extrovert and <laughs> I've felt that way where you just don't have the energy. And I always tell people, don't go. Give yourself permission to not go and you'll have another opportunity. If you can't find that right energy or give yourself a break, you've had enough, go to the restroom, go check your phone, go sit outside, go give yourself a break until you can find an energy that's going to be useful again. So extracting yourself is completely unacceptable energy when you don't think what you could bring to that interaction, that conversation is going to be productive. The one that I want people to target is to meet people where they are. When you are bringing productive energy, what you're doing, because energy is about the exchange. Do you mean exchange. like mirror, mirroring? Is that what I'm not saying? talking about mirroring, but okay. I'll, I'll, we, can, we can hit that as well. When we meet somebody where they are, what you're doing is you are validating their energy positioning. So if somebody is really upset to come in and to go completely opposite their energy, doesn't feel they don't feel understood. But instead, if you say, oh, I hear you're really upset. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. What might make you feel better? Or, you know, how can I help? So if you kind of bring that same energy, and sometimes they say just over or just under. So if you're sad, I might bring just a little bit of happiness to help you move out of that bad place. And if you are really riled up, I might bring a little bit of a calming energy, but I'm not going to bring you zen when you're <laughs> all riled up because like somebody might get hit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just disarming them and putting people at ease. You're making somebody feel heard, listened to, and understood. And then you're helping them shift to a more productive place by meeting them where they are and then moving with them. So we're only four laws in. How many would you, <laughs> if you don't mind, just give a, a run through. And then, I, then I've got a follow-up question to you of how overwhelming could this be for someone who is so out of touch with the law? I mean, there's some of these laws that, that you're going to mention that I think most people are going to be able to relate to. Yeah. And, and some are only going to be able to relate to like one or two. You'd be surprised. Yeah? I think okay. all of these are accessible. Okay. And if we group them like we just did, those four laws are kind of before the conversation. That's getting your head in the game and giving you some perspective. And honestly, this is nonlinear. You might have some of these already, but you just need to tweak or tap into or refresh yourself on some of these. The middle section of the book is about the conversation itself. And there's four laws there. So we always start with the law of curiosity. Everyone says, well, I don't know how to start a conversation. When you don't know where to start, start with curiosity. Ask a question you actually want to know the answer to. And curiosity creates connections. I mean, that's what happened with us. You said this and I said that and oh, 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 is what keeps happening. So once we go from curiosity, we have to go to listening because don't ask if you're not going to listen to the answer. So curiosity, listening, then what we're looking for in that conversation is similarity. What do we have in common? And that's where the mirroring comes in. I, I do caution people with mirroring. Mirroring is the concept that 
when people are connecting, their body language, their rate of speech, their volume of voice, those things start to mirror each other. And it happens naturally. It's a natural phenomenon. Make somebody feel more connected to make somebody feel that their similarities will do it intentionally. And I think you can do that a little, but I think you have to be careful because it comes off as very forced and intentional and inauthentic. So there's a little bit of information about how to do it right in the book. (laughs) And then the last in the conversation is the law of mood memory. And this is another one of those concepts that people struggle with. It's the idea that people remember more how you make them feel than anything that you say. So true. This is where I spend a lot of time because you can have a great exchange with somebody and then they feel like, oh, you're done with me? Okay, I'm done with you. You know? (laughs) And you can really ruin it right at that close. How do people ruin it? They ruin it by kind of letting somebody feel like, okay, I've had enough of you. Or doing a lot of that eye flitting or looking at their phone and not giving that attentiveness. There are just things that make it awkward at the end. So we want to make sure that we know how to extract ourselves while still making somebody feel good, looking for that follow-up, that next point of contact, because that's the last section of the book. And that's what do you do after the conversation? That's where the rubber hits the road. We can all have a conversation. We can get ourselves in, in the right mind frame. But now what? If you really want to create connection and long-term relationships, it's what you do after. And that's partly why I wrote the follow-up to the 11 laws. So we we talked about at the beginning what I'm working on now, which is the Connectors Club. And the 11 laws of likability is kind of part one, and the Connectors Club is part two. So now that you understand how to make these relationships, I want you to be in the club. Talk more about that, because that is where a lot of people have good enough social skills. They make these connections, but they just completely drop the ball. And it's a shame because you've already vested so much of your time. To me, time's the the biggest commodity in the world. Money, you can can get it back. Time, you cannot get back. So maximize that time. You've spent time with with this person. Do that small little follow-up. Can you talk more about that? So one of the things I often say is, you know, it's interesting how you position it of you've invested this time. I would hope you've enjoyed that time. I don't want you to think about it ever as a waste, even if you don't follow up, if you enjoyed the exchange. When we are kind of creating these relationships, I, I try to think a little non-strategically. And it might be a little anti-intuitive. But for me, it's, am I enjoying myself? Great. That's all I need to know right now. I don't need to know why or where it's going to go. But if I enjoyed myself, then I'm going to look for another opportunity to enjoy myself with that person, and then we'll see what happens. That's just the mindset. There's three laws about after the conversation. One is the law of familiarity. You want to stay in somebody's mind, but you don't want to get in their face. And so we want to talk about how do we stay in somebody's mind because people trust what's familiar to them. It builds trust. And I've heard it a few times. The law of giving is the idea that it's interesting. When we were walking back, we had breakfast this morning. We were walking back in the diner and you talked about this law of reciprocity. And that was actually the original title to chapter 10 was the law of reciprocity. And it just didn't sit right with me because that's not what I was trying to say. Because the law of reciprocity says, hey, if you do something for someone, they'll want to do it back for you. So you should do something. So they do something. That's not what I want. The law of giving is do because you can, do because you want to. Giving creates value. Do without the expectation of somebody giving something back in return. Well put. Reciprocity may happen for you, and it may happen for somebody else. But the idea that you're doing because you want to and not without without that expectation, that's really what I want to convey. That's what builds relationships. So 
that's the chapter I give away. So in your show notes, there's also a link to a gift pack. I have lots of goodies for people. And that's one of the chapters I give away because I believe so much in the concept. The last piece of the after the conversation is patience. Sometimes we rush our relationships. Hmm. We push them too hard, too fast. We ask for too much. We think they're going to just go click, 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 click so quick. And you got to give them time to grow. Do you have any stories of relationships that started out uh, superficial that really grew and now have become really close friends or and or business partners? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure and, you might have one or two of those. <laughs> you know, it's funny. One that always stands out in my mind is this woman who I went to business school with, but I didn't know her in business school. And when I was in finance and I was talking about have, wanting to get out and become a coach and do training and kind of recreate and redesign, they told me about this woman, and I'll call her um, Gail, that was doing something similar and said, let's put you guys in touch. So I had a corner office on Wall Street at the time. She came to my office and she sat across the desk from me and we had a perfectly lovely conversation. And you can kind of hear the wah, 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 <laughs> right? I was kind of like, I, you know, my mood memory was a little flat. I was kind of like, there's so much potential, but we really didn't click. But I thought, you know what? There's so much potential. Let's, let's just give it another shot. And so then she invited me to go watch something at one of her locations. And so I did that. And I was like, mm, okay, that was interesting. Yeah. And it happened like this for a little while. And she was very introverted. I'm very extroverted. Yet there were so many similarities as well. We both love dogs. And I don't exactly know when it happened. But she got a puppy as I had my first child. <laughs> mm. And I have pictures of the two of them on the beach at her Amagansett. I don't know how to say that place, but the shore where we were all together and we ended up writing a book project together. And she ended up, I ended up helping her get placed at NYU and get work here and, you know, and we're still in touch. How long, how many years is this now? Uh, well, let's see. My son is 12. All right. There you go. Yeah. So what do you do to stay in touch with people? So, I, I mean, you're at a point right now where you've got people reaching out to people like me left and right that are coming at you. Your name, your name is out there. You've done some really great work. What do you do? How do you stay in touch with people? That's a great question. And I think you have to have different means and mechanisms for different people. So I have my, what I call my JCC friends. So where my kids went to nursery school, I was literally at a barbecue with them yesterday and I get to see all of them and we will throw uh, birthdays for the women. And so we'll have girls nights out. And so there's those social events that we keep in touch. I'm not on the phone with them. I'm not emailing them, but we we have events that bring us together. When it is something of, you know, really far back, like the business call people, it might be a little bit more on Facebook where we're liking or putting a little comment and just kind of staying in their mind. This is all familiarity. Um, and so it's just kind of popping up in their lives. Uh, it's what I call light touches. I'm letting you see that I'm here, but I'm not asking you to do anything. Those happy birthdays, those congratulations, those things. If it's professional people, I have a lot of different LinkedIn or Google groups. So there's a Google group called the Authoresses, and we are about 250 female authors. And I'm not emailing back to every post, but I will respond to enough where my name is very present in that group. What does networking mean to you? A lot of times I feel that people just miss it. They don't get it. They just think it's all about what they can get for themselves when touching I back to what- I hate the word networking. I yeah. hate it because especially how you pronounce it, you're like work. I mean, it has the word work it. My publisher for the first book required me to have the word networking in the title for SEO. Hmm. And I said, but it's only half about that. He's like, what's the other half? I said, relationships. So I coined the phrase relationship networking as a new paradigm. 
because it's not about the work. It's about, I say, networking is just another way of saying making friends, building connections, make, having relationships. It shouldn't feel like work. Who wants to do it if it does? But wouldn't you agree that there is some elbow grease behind? Like you just talked about a lot of things that you do. Not that it's forced, but it does take some energy to keep up with all these different groups that you're a part of and all of these different networks. Because you just mentioned just a few networks. And I just know through the course of our conversation that you've got a bunch of others. And we all do. It's energy I would agree with. But work I wouldn't. Because if it becomes oh, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I won't do it. I get a lot out of being a part of this group of authoresses. I get a lot out of whatever groups that I'm in touch with. And it might not be the same, you know, friendship level that we had then. But like, for example, the girls I went to undergrad with, we met in Vegas this past January. I mean, we've never done that. It was awesome. I'm not on the phone with them, but you find your different tools, whether they're video conferencing, instant messaging, your Facebooks and your Twitters and all of those social media platforms, your in-person events, your groups where it's a group conversation. We do these group, uh, my son does group texts or Instagram. So there's ways that we create a more efficient means to stay familiar, to stay connected. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think more people miss the boat in terms of not really building a base foundation of a relationship and they go to you know, they, like you said, they don't have the patience. Is it people that only get in touch with people when they need something? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think a lot of people network for need and they network for now and they don't network for life. They don't build a network that sustains them all the way through. And that's really why I started to want to write this next book, uh, The Connectors Club. And my brother-in-law asked me, he's so excited that he's getting credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, give him a shout. Go for it. Give him Ray more. helped me figure out the difference between, this sounds like the same book, you know, Level is like a building the Connectors Club. He's like, what's the difference between networking and connecting? And I answered him and then realized what the answer was. And I said, well, networking is something that you do. A connector is someone that you are. And that's where I wanted to take this next book is to take people to the next level. Now that you understand it, and these are some of the, the things that you can do to enable that connection to happen, I want you to embody the mindset of a connector. A connector is a certain way of thinking and acting that is infused into the way that they just, their view. How do you get somebody to be a connector? The first thing is to understand that it's a spectrum. And there's very few people on the edge of the spectrum of being a non-connector. Because you're all doing some form of connecting in our life, unless you're a hermit, you know? Mm -hmm. We are always networking. We're always connecting. We're always out there, whether it's on the playground, at your place of worship, at the supermarket. Oh, and the line at the ladies' room is a great place to network. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not so much in the men's room. I don't know. (laughs) But you're always doing it. So non-connector is the bottom of the spectrum, and global super connector is the top. But there's a lot in between. And the truth is, most people don't need to be a global super connector. I don't think that should be everyone's goal. My sister is what you call a niche connector, which is kind of middle towards the top of the spectrum. And it's exactly where she should be. She doesn't need to be a global super connector. A niche connector is somebody who is highly connected in a certain industry or geography or job function. So you might know everyone in HR. You might know everybody in your town. You might know everybody in the company or the field or something like that. So my sister is, um, she works with the real estate lawyers in New Jersey. Every single law firm in New Jersey knows my sister. Mm -hmm. Anybody in a courthouse 
where the sheriff sales happen, foreclosed properties, knows my sister. And she knows them all. And so she is a niche connector, highly connected. You can call her a super connector within the niche, so to speak. So that's a form of connecting that is great for what she does. Regional connecting is is similar. Um, You have what we call emerging connectors. Emerging connectors are kind of starting to see the value and the benefits and they're putting a little bit more thought around that this makes sense, that relationships are are valuable. And, And when we think about history and we think about what has been valuable, agricultural age, it was land. In the industrial age, it was machine, right? In the information age, it was technology. I think we're in the network age. And the value is your your relationships. As you're emerging, you're starting to bring some of these qualities. And then you can be maybe a responsive connector. A responsive connector is somebody who will respond to requests for assistance and for some of these things, but they might not realize it themselves. They might not be initiating, but they are being responsive in those roles. And then you could be acting. You know what? If all you want to be is an acting connector, you're good. And I would say that's where my husband has evolved from. He was emerging back when he started in business school, and he was very much reliant on me to start conversations and open things up, and I became a mute. (laughs) (laughs) And so it emerged. And then as he was looking for jobs, you know, people were helping him. And I said, well, what have you done to help your network? He's like, well, nothing, but I would do anything they asked. And that was a very responsive connector response. Mm -hmm. He just hadn't gotten to the place of knowing how to create the value. And now he does. And now he's an acting connector. He's not trying to know everybody in the industry or everybody in the field, but he's actively being supportive of his network, you know, receiving as well as giving. That's a great place. He doesn't necessarily need to go any further. So what I want people to understand is being a connector doesn't mean you have to be a super connector. There's a spectrum. Are you familiar with the five-minute favor? No. Don't quote me on this. I want to give credit to Adam Rifkin, but I don't know if necessarily, I think he's the one that kind of really put it on the map. I don't know if he's the inventor of it. So Adam Rifkin, he was featured in uh, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. He was what was known, identified as the most connected individual by Forbes magazine. And what they did is they realized who had the most I don't know if they how they quantified it, but something to the effect of, of connected to the most or the wealthiest people. Or either way, he's mega super connector, and something that he lives by is essentially the five minute favor. And it's essentially that if something if someone asks you to do anything that's within five minutes, it's hard to say no. You know, uh, as someone who is in, I guess, your network, if, if they ask for something, if it takes you less than five minutes, there's really not a reason that you should say no. I love the five-minute favor. I think people want to say yes. They want to be valuable. And what we need to do is ask in a way that people can say yes. And one of the things I talk about in my new book is how to ask without putting a relationship at risk. That's great. I know we are really short on time, but I'm, you're going to come back. Yes, I and will we're, come back. And, we, and I'm going to need to hear more about the seven mindsets of a connector. Yes. You promise? I promise. Good. I'm very much going to hold you to that. I really appreciate the amount of time that you spent with me at breakfast and just hanging out and coming on the show. And I'm, I'm even more eager for the next time. I look forward to it. Thanks and make it a great day. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash networkwise. Your support really helps. Also, 
If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always network wise.